All right, so we've been looking at the fruits of the Spirit this fall. We began by looking at these fruits as a cluster, contrasting it with the fruits of the flesh, what our bodies, what we want to do in life versus what God wants to do in life through us and in us. Then we began to look at fruits in isolation, a single fruit of the Spirit. Each week we are comparing and contrasting the character of a Christian and the character of a non-Christian. We affirm that Christians and non-Christians are both equally made, beautifully and broken, in the image of God. Non-Christians love and have joy and peace and patience. They're created in the image of God, handcrafted. But because of Jesus, Jesus' death, his crucifixion, his resurrection, and because of his spirit's indwelling, the Christian experience of love, joy, peace, patience is fundamentally different. So today's fruit of the Spirit is patience. Christians and non-Christians both have a high desire for patience, right? We feel whether you are a Christian or non-Christian, that we don't have enough of it, right? I want you to think for a moment how we speak of and describe patience culturally. We say phrases like, you're testing my patience, right? And what do we mean by phrases like this? We mean, we use phrases like this to threaten another person or perhaps just gently warn them. Almost like, okay, I've said it, and now that's my excuse for the words and the actions that are about to come out of me. It's almost as if patience is this long fuse that's just constantly burning and burns and burns. You're testing the patience, and boom, your anger and wrath comes out. We treat patience as if it is some sort of passive safeguard to what we really want to say to people and what we really want to do to people. But as Christians, our hearts need to be pricked right now with this idea that this is not the patience that God has displayed to you and I time and time again in the advent, crucifixion, and resurrection and return of our Lord. This is not the patience that the Holy Spirit of Christ given to us through his death and resurrection, is growing into us as Christians. So we begin today with God himself, because the very basis of patience is God himself, just like love, joy, and peace. God is patience. Take a look at one of David's psalms, Psalm 145, verses 8 through 9. This is one of the most repeated lines in all of the Jewish scriptures. Moses uses it, and David uses this line time and time again. Psalm 145, verses 8 through 9 says, The Lord is gracious, merciful, slow to anger, great in loving kindness. The Lord is good to all. We learn five things fundamental about God's character from this verse. God is gracious towards you. God is merciful towards you. God is slow to anger towards you. God is great in loving kindness towards you. God is good, not just to you, not just to this church, not just to America. 
God is good to all. Even the sinner. Even to those who have opposite beliefs to you. Who are on the other extreme and the other side of the aisle as you. So we ask, where's God's patience here? And I'll tell you, it is in the phrase, slow to anger. Do you see that? Christian patience begins by experiencing the truth that God is ever slow to anger towards you. God's patience is often called by the older translations, forbearance. Does anybody have that in their scriptures? I know some of you still have some of those old-time translations. Any forbearance going on in your scripture? If not, that's okay. Patience, therefore, is not some passive activity that's just burning away in the heart of God so he can give to you what he really wants to give you. Do you see what I'm saying? God's patience is not your patience. And we have to grow into his patience. And it's the work of God, the Spirit, in us to grow that into us. Patience is the forbearing work of God towards your good. Especially when you think what's going on right now in your life cannot be God's best for your life. All things, prosperity and persecution, suffering, they both go through the sovereign and merciful hands of God. It's not just God has done this good thing in my life and Satan's doing this terrible thing. We know, as we will be reminded today through Job, is that Satan has a leash on him, always has. Eventually this leash will get unloosened at the end, but it's still on him today. Vernon's going to be a look like he's ready, like talk eschatology. No, no, not today. Forbearance is something that you and I can understand as modern Western people because forbearance is now an economics and a banking term. You have a mortgage. You come upon hard times, right? You can't pay your mortgage back. It begins to function like debts do. You become enslaved to it. It weighs you down, right? So you call the bank for help. You're finally honest. You tell them about the situation because you keep getting those letters in the mail. And they tell you about a policy that they have called forbearance. The bank has the ability to temporarily put up with your delinquency. To put up and pretend that it's not really going on. They will not move forward with the consequences that you agreed to when you loaned, when you borrowed money from that institution. And if they approve your forbearance for a time period, they will not hold your sins against you. They will not hold against you that you have not followed through on your commitments. But here is where secular forbearance falls short. Their forbearance is temporary. Banks are running, run by fallen and broken image bearers of God, just like you. And they are out for themselves, just like you versus others. You must pay that debt back eventually even if it's a balloon payment at the very end of the term. The bank's forbearance cannot change your heart, and it cannot change the habits that put you in the position in the first place. Their forbearance falls short. The greater forbearance is found in God's patient heart towards you, because our God does not give to you and I what we deserve, but what we truly need. Amen? God's forbearance 
through the Holy Spirit, is meant to change your heart, and it's meant to change my heart. Where we once vilified and ostracized and marginalized and canceled those from the other side of the aisle. But now we begin to see them as people and not demons who are working against us. God is patiently working towards something. As we will see, like James says, it's like a farmer working towards a crop. Christian patience begins by experiencing God's patience towards you in Christ Jesus. God forbears with you by giving to Jesus what you deserve all along. That's the gospel. This is what it means to be a Christian. And this experience must, over time, reshape our approach to people. And that's what today is about. Let's get to our proposition. Today, the truth that I think that through our collection of texts is going to drive a truth home to us is this. That the Holy Spirit grows patience into a Christian to wait on God to work by increasing our trust in his character. Christian patience begins by looking back, by remembering how God has displayed patience and forbearance and long-suffering with you and with me. When you realize and experience what God has endured with with you, it begins to free you from criticism, from negativity, from judgment, bitterness towards that other person. Because you have done to God much more and much deeper and more offensive than what other people are doing to you. You've robbed his glory. He created you for a reason. And you have no desire to live out of that reason. Therefore, impatience is the opposing work of the flesh in our lives. It fights against the fruit of patience in our lives. Impatience, we will see, it grieves and it quenches the work of Jesus' spirit in us, which begins to open up the idea that though you may be a genuine Christian, this morning at 10.20, sorry, 11.20, you can still be grieving and quenching Christ's spirit in your life. The Holy Spirit permanently indwells Christians. We are led by the Spirit. We walk by the Spirit. We are filled by the Spirit. We've been studying this on Wednesday nights, right? But this does not mean that you and I cannot quench or diminish and grieve his work in our lives. Impatience is conquered when you and I experience and we live out how God has been slow to anger towards us. So we're going to look at that today. We're going to look at God's faithfulness to you and I in Christ Jesus. That's going to form the foundation and the basis of our patience towards people. Because Christian patience is so much more than just a ticking time bomb. And then we're going to see that patience is in passivity. Sitting idly by, just waiting for God to move. We will therefore see at the end in our application that the experience of God's patience in our lives actually puts us to work, that you and I have priorities that we're working on as we wait for God to move. That's today in a nutshell. So let's dive into it. The first point you're going to see, the call for you to grow in patience by trusting not just the character, but the track record of God. 
And that's what we're going to look back at for a moment. In point one, you are going to see two ways that the Holy Spirit grows patience into you as a Christian. He does this by giving us the ability to trust in God's character. That if he says something, he's going to do it. As we sang moments ago, he finishes what he begins. He's not like my dad, and he's not like your dad. He's the best of all dads. If he says something, he's going to do it. And then two, we're going to see that the Holy Spirit grows patience into us to trust in God's previous past track record in our lives and around the world. Let's take a look at verse 7 now. James begins, and he says, Be patient, brethren. He's saying, Church, be patient. When? How long? Until the coming of the Lord. Example, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and the late rains. The farmer is an example of patience. Now remember, even non-Christians are patient. It's like we are superior to them. They're equal image bearers of God, and they have a capacity, just like you and I, albeit a broken capacity, to experience love, joy, peace, and patience. A farmer is after one thing. James calls it precious produce. I cannot wait for the spring for my blueberry bushes to now look like blueberry trees to begin to bloom again. I cannot wait. It's why I watered them this morning. Farmers do not sit around doing nothing and just expect a harvest. The farmer is keenly aware of what he or she can control and what he or she cannot control. What the farmer can do and cannot do. He cannot make the sun shine. He cannot make it rain. Though God has given us capacity for technology, right? To where if there is droughts, we can still get soil, the rain that it needs to give it the nutrients for whatever to grow. The farmer knows that he can cultivate and till and plot and tend. The farmer works patiently with this mindset that there are things that he cannot make happen and there are things that he can make happen while he waits for something he cannot do, which is cause a harvest. Jesus, James uses this imagery to teach you Christian patience. James's point is, you are that farmer. I am that farmer. So look at how the character and the track record of God is tied to patience. You see, James gives us a timestamp on Christian patience. Do you see that? There's a duration. There's that word, that preposition, until. We are patient until the coming of the Lord. You know what James is doing right here? He's doing some soul business as a pastor. He was the, one of the first pastors ever. And he pastored the church in Jerusalem in the first century. And he's telling his church this. He is clarifying what it is that you and I are really longing for deep down. What it is that we are really waiting for deep down. That's not the romantic relationship, the pay raise, a new house, a new car, to make sure that our kids are okay. Those are all secondary to this number one thing. What our souls are really waiting for deep down is Jesus' return. And this is why. Because we know deep down that this world is not right. We don't need to turn to our news feed right now and see what's going on in another part of the world to know that this world is not right, that people are broken and that people are flawed. 
It is ingrained to us. We know this world is not right. And we know, therefore, because this world is not right, someone greater than the world must come along to make it right. We are all waiting for Jesus as Christians to return, to destroy sin, to eliminate sorrow, and to battle Satan and finish him once and for all. This is all about the character and the track record of Jesus. Now, in the Gospel of John, which we went through several years ago, Jesus promises people that he was leaving for a good reason. He was leaving to go back to his Father, and he is preparing. He's still working. He's not passive. Christian patience is not passive. And he said that when he's finished with his preparations, that he is going to return to us. He's going to come back, and he's always going to be with us. This means that the basis of Christian patience is founded on Jesus' character. And it's founded on questions like, will Jesus be true to his word? Will Jesus really return? And the answer is a resounding yes. Amen, Heritage? He will be true to his word. He will return. And you and I can be confident that Jesus will return and Jesus will be faithful because he was faithful the first time. The first advent of Jesus, which once we're done with the Fruits of the Spirit series, it's Advent time, and we get to remember this. I cannot wait. But the first advent of Jesus secures and locks down the second advent of Jesus. Jesus' faithfulness to his promise the first time is the basis for you and I to trust that he is going to return the second time. Can you imagine if Messiah did not come 2,000 years ago, where the basis of hope and trust in humanity would be, waiting an additional 2,000 years for the first coming? It's the grounds of our hope heritage. If you trust Jesus, you can grow in patience, I think towards yourself, which I'm speaking to myself right now, but also to the people in your life. Let's look at verse 8. James's conclusion is that you too can be patient. Strengthen your hearts. And then he repeats himself. It's not just your pastor who kept saying the same stuff over and over again. James does it too, so does Paul. And he says, strengthen your hearts for why the coming of the Lord is near. Look again at how James ties together Christian patience to Jesus' return. During Jesus' first advent, James didn't believe Jesus. None of Jesus' half-siblings believed that their half-brother was Messiah in flesh, God's son. And we've talked about this before, and it's a struggle. I also think that's why many pastors don't stay put for too long in America, because familiarity breeds contempt. James couldn't see his half-brother as Messiah. James was impatient. James was fast to anger towards Jesus. But Jesus' death and resurrection put his half-brother in a different position. James became an apostle and became the first pastor of Jerusalem's church. And I've said this many times to you on Wednesday nights when it comes up that this man, the half-brother of Jesus, was murdered for being a Christian. The religious establishment of Judaism in Jerusalem took James to the pinnacle of the temple, the same place where Satan tempted Jesus, 
and they pushed James off the pinnacle of Jerusalem's temple. The fall didn't kill him, and they took their spears, and they just kept poking him until he died. That's James. And then probably 10 years later, Rome comes in, destroys that temple, and it's never been built again. I wonder why. Because they used the temple for the wrong reason time and time again. Jesus is calling on you today to be a Christian farmer. The fruit of Jesus is the crop that is being produced, not just in your backyard, but in your heart. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is what is meant to strengthen your heart for the waiting and for the work. And he strengthens your heart to trust in Jesus' character and his return. Trusting the character and the track record of Jesus is going to strengthen your heart against your flesh's work of impatience in your life. And for a moment, let us see what impatience wants to do to you. Look at verse 9. James says, Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge, the Lord who's coming near, he's standing right at the door. When impatience dominates your heart, you will criticize, complain, and judge people. This grieves the Holy Spirit inside of me and inside of you. Impatience, this is what it does. Impatience destroys your ability to see people who who they really are. They're just as beautiful as you are, and they're just as broken as you are. They're just as flawed as you are. But impatience forms a perception of that person by which you can't even attain to yourself. Do you realize that? That's what impatience does to you. That's the work of the flesh in your life, to see people not for who they are, but as commodities. Impatience elevates you, and it diminishes the other. Impatience sets you up as the ultimate judge over that person. And James is reminding you and I that Jesus is the judge, not you, not me. He is one that is standing right at that door. Oh, my goodness, if he opened that door right now, and this was the end. Yes, Maranatha. But we stop for a moment and we think, God has been abundantly over the top, gracious, merciful, slow to anger, and loving towards you. He has more than enough reason to complain against you, to judge you. But instead, God crucified his son. He judged his son for your sins. And you and I must, this is non-negotiable, you and I must frame our hearts and our heart for people with this truth. Because if not, impatience will eat you up. It will eat you up. So James shifts and gives us two biblical examples of everyday kinds of people and a person to teach us patience. Let's look at the first one. In verses 10 through 11, James says, As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endure. James uses the example of what we consider the Old Testament prophets to teach us about God's suffering and patience towards us. 
We are reading through Jeremiah right now, if you're doing our year through the Bible together. And you've just seen the destruction of Jerusalem this week. You've seen Jeremiah in a ditch, just mud, no food. And his cousins, religious people, high priests and elders, Levites doing this to him. As he's calling, please stop your ways, turn back. Something's going to come from the north and wipe us out if you don't. They threw him in a pit. Eventually, we're going to read Ezekiel. Oh, Ezekiel. And you'll find one chapter where God allows the death of Ezekiel's wife to be a testimony of what's going on in the heart of God for his people. I can't imagine that suffering. Daniel, which our guys are studying right now in our kindreds, Daniel suffered because he authentically lived for Yahweh in a pagan polytheistic culture. James says the prophets endured it all. And patience is how they endured. They were hurt and rejected. They were beaten and broken. They suffered, yet they were patient. And that enabled them to continue working and living out God's purpose for their lives. But there's something deeper that's going on here. And I hope that you see this. The way that James phrases this implies that in part, and maybe it's just a tiny part, but in part, the prophets suffered to provide you with an example of suffering and patience. Do you see that? In part, Ezekiel's wife had to die. So you can know how to be patient when you lose a loved one. Jeremiah was thrown in a pit so that in part you can know that someone can survive persecution and trouble when people don't like you and intend harm against you. Do you get that? They are just as human as you are. Every bit as human as you are. Daniel was just a boy when he was taken away to slavery. Yet they endured and they persevered despite their suffering and what people did to them. Now, example two, which I think many of us, most of us are familiar with. The rest of verse 11, James says, you have heard of the endurance of Job, and you've seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion, and he's merciful. James wraps up this little survey of Old Testament and his teaching of patience by using the classic example of suffering and patience, which is Job himself. Job suffered and lost everything, wealth, possessions, children, plural, his marriage, and his health. Can you think of anything else that you could lose in this life? Job lost it. And Job rightly attributed the loss of everything to God himself. Shaved head, scabs all over him. He says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He's attributing all that he has and all that he has lost, all of his love and all of his sorrow to God himself. That's good theology. It's true. Yet Job endured. And once again, this implies that Job experienced this for you, in part. You can look back at Job's life, and you can see the outcome of it all. Job could not, when he's sitting there in the ash, taking potsherds and trying to scrape off his scabs. But you can look back at his life and you can see the outcome of the Lord's work in his life. And the conclusion is this. Despite the loss, 
despite the suffering, despite the rejection that Job experienced. Remember he had three friends that came along? And they did the friendly thing to do. They sat next to him in his sorrows and didn't say a word. That's what we're supposed to do to people when they're hurting. They don't need teaching right now. They just need us to sit there. But they couldn't do it past I mean, the eighth day. They had enough. And oh, all the buildup, that fuse. And for chapter after chapter, Job is a sinner. Job has done wrong. Job is terrible. Job's getting what's coming to him. But despite all that rejection that Job experienced, we see the outcome. God was full of compassion, and God was full of mercy to Job. And I do not think if we could interview Job at the end of his life, that he would look back and say, it wasn't worth it. I begrudge God for what he has done. No. I think he would still say, the Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's the character of God. That is the track record of your God. And better than Job, you and I have Jesus himself, the best of all Job's. You can be more patient than a farmer for crops because you have the spirit of Jesus indwelling you. And he's working Jesus' patience into you. You have experienced the compassion and the mercy of God through Christ Jesus our Lord. Patience, therefore, is more than just that fuse, that ticking time bomb. And when it runs out, boom, you have justified anger. Patience is the heart of God working over time for his glory and for your good. Now we're going to shift to see the patience that God is working into us. It's not a patience of passivity. It is a patience of activity. And we're going to see the priorities of the patience while we wait for God to move. That's our application. Let's take a look at it. So we walk away from this today, and this is what we have to wrestle with, that you and I must prioritize the ministry of patience in those that God has put into our lives. There are people in your life that God has intentionally put there, and they're in your life right now for you to demonstrate Patience like a farmer. Better than patience of a farmer. The patience of Christ. As you experience God's long-suffering, his forbearance and patience in your life, you realize God's playing a different game than anybody else on this planet. He is not playing the short game. He's playing the long game. We typically, in athletics, we play the long game when we're desperate. Right? That Hail Mary is for the last three seconds on the clock, right? Not God. Some of you are like, Hail Mary? What? Is this the Catholic Church? We're talking football. It's football season, right? Yeah, I guess. <laughs> God's playing the long game with us. And he has been working towards a specific plan of redemption from before he created the heavens and the earth. God's plan of salvation in your life wasn't reactionary to Adam and Eve. It's always been the plan. This changes our approach to people. And it begins by acknowledging that you and I, we are far too short-fused. Can we say that? Can we acknowledge that? Like, uh, husbands and wives, can you turn to each other right now? If you, if you don't mind, say, I am too short-fused with you. And, you. and you say it back, I am too short-fused with you. <laughs> or, family members... Right? 
<laughs> She'll appreciate that. You and I are too short-fused. And this is the reality. Even the most patient person that you and I know looks like the greatest impatient person we know when standing next to Christ. We play the short game with people. It's three strikes and you're out. For some of you, it's not even three strikes and you're out. It's one and done. I've been there with you. Jesus died so his spirit would indwell you. And by this indwelling, he is working the long-suffering, the forbearance, the patience of Jesus into you. Why? So you don't become critical and bitter and judgmental towards fellow image bearers of God who are just as flawed as you are. So let's turn to the Apostle Paul now. In 1 Thessalonians 5, so we can see that patience isn't passivity. Patience is activity. The Christian, we're going to see right now, you have a clear ministry. You have things to do while you wait for God to move. Waiting does not mean passivity. That feels good to us guys. Like I can just sit while others do things. Let's take a look at the Apostle Paul. In First Thess. Sorry, Thessalonians. Tisa makes fun of me for like giving nicknames to scriptures. Thessalonians. I saw her face from across the room. In 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 14 through 19, listen to how Paul encourages these uh, Greek Macedonian Christians. He says, brethren, admonish the unruly. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Here it is. Be patient with everyone. That's the heart of this verse. Everything flows out. See that no one repays another with evil for evil. Always seek after that which is good for one another and, not just the church, but for all people. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. And everything give thanks. This is God's will for you, and for you, and for you, and for me. Do not quench the Spirit. We see the call for Christians to be patient with everyone, not just the church, but everyone in the church family and outside the church family. Because you and I, people in the church and without the church, are fallen, beautiful, broken image bearers of God, just like you. And just like me, just because they have different points of view than you do doesn't diminish who they are as human beings. So we see seven priorities here that the Christian has while we wait for God to move. Seven things for you and I to do while we wait for God. Patience is not sitting back and doing nothing. Patience is acting out of these seven things time and time and time again until God moves. So let's look at them. This one may be the hardest for you. I don't know. I don't know where you are on the spectrum of these seven things. The very first thing Paul says to do, to the normal church member in the church in Thessalonica, first thing he tells them to do is admonish the unruly. Now, this word admonish is a gentle 
reproving. Gentle. Not a wrecking ball demo to a skyscraper. Now, by unruly, Paul means that there are people in your life who are insubordinate. Insubordination means that you are unwilling to put yourself underneath someone. That's why I think that God puts people to belong to a church where you have to put yourself underneath your brothers and sisters. They're equal, yet you put yourself under. That mirrors marriage, man and wife equal, yet you mutually put yourself under the other because it mirrors your relationship with Christ, that he's head and you put yourself under him. Marriage and church family reflects who God is and your relationship to him. But this means, you know this means, people in this church were around other people who are unruly. They are insubordinate. They would not put their lives underneath another person. It's their way or the highway. They are autonomous. They are independents. You have unruly people in your life. You do. You may be that unruly person in another person's life. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. While we are waiting for God to move in the unruly, you're called to one simple task. Gently reprove them. Gently remind them and push them. Tenderly show them that their stubbornness is going to ruin their soul. It's going to. Because God finishes what he starts in people. Continual stubbornness is proof that you are not a Christian. Words and actions over time, as we often say. Not just that last moment of stubbornness or the season of stubbornness that they're in. The culmination of their life story being stubbornness. Are we okay with that? Okay. If you are impatient with these people, you will be tempted to put yourself as judge over them, like James says. You will be tempted to criticize them and to judge the unruly. However, the Christian prays for them, and they look for opportunities, well-seasoned, well-placed opportunities, to push them to consider a different way than what they're going down. Then Paul says to encourage the faint-hearted. And likewise, you know what this implies? In this church, people were faint-hearted. People were discouraged. Life and its adversities were getting to them, hurting them, making them feel like, did I do the right thing in becoming a Christian? Did I? Should I go back? You have at least one person in your life that is faint-hearted right now. I know this because there are multiple people in our church family right now that are faint-hearted. And you are not meant just to sit there and do nothing while they are faint-hearted. Do you see that? You have a ministry. You do. Not just pastor. Not just pastor's family. Not just deacons. Not just the hospitality team. And because you're not on the hospitality team, you don't have to do this. Right? All Christians. Is there someone faint-hearted in your life? Encourage them. But if you are not remembering God's mercy towards you, you will be tempted to be impatient with the faint-hearted. We all have stories of our brokenness and suffering 
and we have shared this on Wednesday nights, where we're hurting, we're going through the loss of someone that we love, and the other person expects us just to snap out of it. Like it's like Job's friends, it's been a week, so we're on the eighth day, it's time to move on with your life. And suffering doesn't have a time stamp. For some, it can go on for days, weeks, months, years, and that's okay. But impatience tempts you towards thinking that their hurt is not as significant as what it is. Christians pray for them and seek ways to encourage them for as long as it is needed for God to make night turn to day and suffering to turn into joy and mourning into dancing. Number three, help the weak. Now, you and I live in a culture, sadly, that marginalizes the weak. Whether it's from the unborn to the senior citizen, this culture marginalizes the weak. They're not as important as the people in the prime of their life. Now, that's socialism, number one. But Paul calls on Christians to display a devotion to the weak in all the stages of life. But if you are not remembering your weakness, your weakness says, if you're like me, and how God has been strength in your life, you are going to be tempted to criticize that person. Because you know what? Though you have lots of weaknesses, their weakness is not as weak as yours, right? When we are in pain and when we're struggling, we always think that our struggles trumps what the other person is struggling with. Because remember, impatience elevates self and diminishes the other. There is nothing new under the sun. There is nothing new that you are experiencing that other fallen, broken image bearers of God don't struggle with. But we like to think that our pain is unique to us. And you elevate self and you crush the person who is struggling. When as Christians, we are clearly called to help them. Just because their weakness is not your weakness does not mean that their weakness is not valid. Next one, do not repay evil for evil. Instead, seek after God's best for them. And if you are not remembering what God has done for you in Jesus, that in Jesus, God did not repay your evil with evil, you will be tempted to pay that person back for whatever perceived hurts or persecution or sorrow or suffering they're giving to you. If you do not remember that at the cross, God did not repay you for your evil. He put it on his son instead. God is our avenger, which we looked at, was it last week? Right? And impatience puts you in control of your payback. Rejoice always. Are you beginning to see as our weeks continue the relationship of these fruits to one another? We're talking about patience, but then there's joy. Last week we saw peace and love mingle, peace and joy mingle together. There's relationship between these fruits. The patient, this is what it means. The patient, while they're waiting, they have a job to do. They have to look for ways and things to rejoice in God about. So whatever physical, emotional, relational thing you're experiencing right now, 
you have something to rejoice about. Amen? Think of those things. And it will no longer elevate you and diminish the other person. And you'll begin to see them as equals. Pray without ceasing. Do you see now that patience is not a passive activity? Prayer is not passive. It is active. I was up at 6.30 this morning. Wonder what I was doing this morning? Praying for you. That's what I was doing. It's an action. Did that bed, when I got up, and I heard my Lord of the Rings ringtone to wake me up, because yes, that is my morning ringtone, that little penny whistle. Wow, I can't believe I just said that. No, I have something in my manuscript that says, limit the ad lib. Limit the ad lib. Oh, oh boy. And no matter how cozy and comfortable and warm that bed was, I was praying for you. Patience is not passive. Prayer is not passive. I'll just pray for you, brother. As if like that phrase is like some sort of like juju that makes God do anything. Patience puts you in a position to pray for people, for God to work out his designs, his best for them, not your best, not your intentions. And once again, if you're impatient and you're devaluing that person, you're not going to pray for them. Give thanks. When you remember that God has been so patient with you, so patient with you, you see life differently. You begin to see the little things, the big things, the good things, even the hard things, as coming by his sovereign and merciful hands. Now Paul wraps up and he summarizes by saying, this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. How many times have you reached out struggling, saying, I don't know what God's will is for my life. You can't, you, you can't say that anymore. What does God want you to do with your life? Admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, don't repay evil for evil. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks. you got seven things to do right now. That's God's will for your life. And honestly, as you do these seven things, God's going to take care of the thing that you really wonder is the will of God. Should I marry that person? Should we have another kid? Should we move away? Should we join another church? God's going to take care of all of those things as you do those seven things. You have a ministry to the unruly, the faint-hearted, and the weak in your life. This is God's will for you. That you do not quench the Spirit. So what does it look like to quench the Spirit? It's walking out of this door today, continuing to think that patience is passivity versus patience being priorities. These priorities. Not doing those things while you wait for God to move is quenching the spirit. So you grieve him when you sit idly by because the others will do the ministry. You grieve him when you hear your life is a ministry, yet you do nothing. God has placed a variety of, your, of people in your life. Those who are unruly, those who are faint-hearted, and those who are weak. Now you know why God has done this. You have a ministry of patience towards them. 
Now you know the priorities of this ministry towards them. So how you respond to this today, I think, begins to show you. It is telling of whether the Holy Spirit's work is being quenched in your life or not. So the question, the admonishing that I have to do right now is this. Are you grieving the Holy Spirit's work in you? Y'all talk to me about my looks. Like, he's looking at me. So I'm making sure I'm looking at everybody so it's not just you. Okay. <laughs> Remember that was like several weeks ago in Kindred? I think it was Ben. I think Ben said that. I thought you were looking at me. And all the brothers were like, welcome to church. Okay. Are you relying on Jesus' spirit? So stop before we move forward. And the busyness of the Sunday continues. Stop right now in your heart and in your soul and look back. Look back to how God has been patient and tender, forbearing with you. He is gracious, merciful, slow to anger, great in love and kindness towards you. He has not given to you what you deserve, but what you need, even the hard things. His spirit is inside you to experience this and remember this over and over again. And this changes your priorities in life. And it changes your view of patience. As the Holy Spirit is working patience into you, he is calling you to show his fruit, his patience to those in your life, even if they are unruly. Oh, trust me, I'm there. I understand. Even the faint-hearted even the week. You have seven things to do while you wait for God to do his thing in the lives of others. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, and patience.